Welcome to Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts, coming to you this week from the Portland Book Festival. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today I'm joined by a New York Times bestselling author and cartoonist. Her work has appeared in The Village Voice, The National Lampoon, Scientific American, Mother Jones, and most notably, The New Yorker. The New Yorker's David Remnick said of her, she's got a very recognizable style of squiggly lines and neurotic characters. Roz Chast, it's a pleasure to have you on Words and Pictures. Oh, thank you for having me. So about that David Remnick quote, is that pretty accurate? You do like to draw neurotic people, but also inanimate objects, lamps and wallpaper and knickknacks? Uh, I, I guess I don't really see them necessarily as neurotic. They're just kind of responding to life in what seems like a very normal way. <laughs> I'd like to talk about your most recent book, Here's a testimonial from Alison Bechdel, author of Fun Home. I Must Be Dreaming is Roz Chast at her chastiest, serving up cartoons direct from the source of her apparently vintage chintz upholstered unconscious. And you put it all in a nutshell in one of your Instagram posts where you wrote, Dreams are weird and not my fault. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, dreams are weird and they're not my fault. And they really do come from some place that I don't fully understand. And uh, I've always, since I was a child, found them to be mysterious, uh, but engaging and uh, just deeply interesting. And here's a quote from the book. What I love most about dreams is how every night, without conscious effort on my part, these off-the-wall movies unspool, and I have no idea why or how. Yeah. Yes, there are um, everyday dreams, there's celebrity dreams, there's dentist dreams, there's uh, body horror. It's just like you wake up and suddenly you have like eight fingers or 18 fingers on each hand and uh, just all kinds of strange stuff. So yeah, there's different categories. And then there's the ones that I think of as just everyday dreams that are odd and sometimes funny and and then there are the lucid dreams, which are yes. interesting because they cross over that veil. Yes, yes. Lucid dreams, that's a very good way to put it. They do sort of cross a certain strange veil where am I dreaming or am I awake? But I had a, a lucid dream where I was on the subway and my husband called me and he said, you sound weird. And I said... Yes, of course I sound weird. I'm dreaming. So, I don't know. That I had to write up. <laughs> and the fun part is, I mean, you've done some research on this. You've really done your background. You go into the Kabbalah, the, uh, you go into Freud, you go into Jung, you go into uh, the Egyptians and the Greeks, the philosophers. Yeah, I mean, it does seem that as far back as, you know, people started uh, being conscious of themselves and conscious of their thoughts that people were have always been curious about the dream state, what it was, and whether it had meaning or whether it didn't have meaning. And if it had meaning, then what was the meaning? And, you know, a lot of ancient cultures believed that they were predictive and that you could take the um, elements of your dreams and you would be able to tell what was going to happen in the future. And, uh, you know, I know there were, you know, generals that um, had special people who sort of dreamed for him or that would interpret his dreams and, you know, tell them, like, how a battle was going to play out and things like that. Um, or people who 
felt that they maybe weren't predictive, but this is way, way before like Freud, but that they, they could, uh, they had a key to maybe helping them live a better life or like problems that, you know, they were having and the dream might give you a key to solve those problems. And you uh, point out the rivalry between Freud and Jung and it had a big bearing on dreams. Freud thought that uh, dreams were just for the person, from the person. Yes. Jung thought there was something a lot deeper. Yes, yes. Well, Jung very much believed in the collective unconscious and he believed in archetypes that uh, crossed over cultures and uh, that in some profound level, in some profound way, we were all connected in this you know, collective unconscious and that dreams gave access to that. And... There's the creativity aspect, too. I mean... Yeah, there's lots of reasons that people have come up with for dreaming and creative problem-solving. And I, th- I think that probably all of these reasons are true to some extent, but I don't think that anybody really knows the full you know, reason why we dream. You quote the Japanese writer Haruki Murakami, who said, For me, writing a novel is like having a dream. Writing a novel lets me intentionally dream while I'm awake. Yes, yes. I, I really responded to, to that quote, which is why I included it, because I think for what I do, you know, thinking up cartoons, most of my life is spent sort of thinking. Um, it's not the, the same as dreaming, but it's definitely letting your thoughts kind of go where they may and to make associations and uh, to think of things that, you know, that usually if you live a life where where you don't have any sort of quiet time where it's just you're constantly bombarded by stuff, I think it's, you know, I remember this from when I had small children, you don't really have that kind of space to let your your thoughts kind of flow and then look at those thoughts and and think about those thoughts and uh, make associations. And, you know, for me as a cartoonist, I'm looking for, you know, where the funny is. And, uh, and that's how that's how I work. Uh, But yeah, I did definitely respond to that quote, because I thought that's what we do, you know, uh, people who write or paint or, you know, you're, you're, looking at what you're thinking in a certain way. The Dadaists and the, and the Surrealists, they believed in the unconscious and they believed in dreams for inspiration. Yeah, yes, yes, this is true. Right, right. Dreams have always been a part, I think, of creating stuff, you know, because dreams are so creative. They just are. And, and with, like, no effort. I mean, that's the best part. You're just kind of like, you know, and, uh, you know, the craziest kind of things just pop up. Uh, And sometimes they're completely stupid and sometimes they're hilarious. And uh, I don't know. Um, I I enjoy it. (laughs) I mean, I have a couple of like longer dreams in the book, but generally they're not more than like a page or something like that. 
Yeah, I love the cartoon ideas aspect of the book because they're so half-formed, but in the dream, you're sure these are the most amazing ideas oh, ever. completely, completely. I mean, I still remember, you know, waking up laughing from some of these completely useless cartoon dreams, um, although occasionally one does sort of become a cartoon. I mean, I, I included a couple of these ridiculous ones in the book as examples. Um, I mean, had one where, and and again, this is uh, Harry Wilmer, who, who whose work I love. He's a writer and a psychiatrist and a Jungian psychiatrist. Uh, very, he knows, knows everything about Jung and his beliefs. Harry Wilmer said that um, the dreaming brain loves jokes, loves puns, loves all this kind of stuff. And I certainly have had those kinds of ideas. As an artist, I'm sure you've had people ask you, where do you get your ideas? I've been certainly asked the same thing. My response is that ideas are coming to all of us all the time. Most of them are pretty silly, but artists don't self-censor as much as other people do. We might spend some time with a silly idea until it becomes something more polished. Yeah, yes, that's true. That's true because uh, sometimes you just have a sense that there's something there, but you just have to dig a little deeper and, you know, maybe polish it, maybe just find it. So, you know, you just have a sense that there's something there, which sometimes, you know, uh, you don't find it, but sometimes you do, you know. More than a century ago, some of the most popular newspaper comics had dream logic as their theme. There were two by Windsor McKay, Dream of the Rarebit Fiend and Little Nemo in Slumberland. Little Nemo, I do know. Yeah, that was great. And the way the legs of the bed would like get like really long and then just start walking and yeah, to me it's it's interesting material, you know. Well, you may not have come up with your best comic ideas while dreaming, but there's a famous story about the 19th century chemist Friedrich August Kekulé. You know, up to that point in the mid-19th century, people had been struggling to figure out the molecular structure of benzene. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. And he's the one with the snake swallowing. Yeah, so yeah. Kekulé, he goes to sleep. He dreams of an Ouroboros, the snake yes. biting his own tail. And when he woke up, he drew up the model of the benzene ring. It was a scientific breakthrough. That is, yeah, there, and I'm sure there have been others. I, I mean, I did write about this a little bit in the book, that I think that our brains are working on stuff all the time, you know, while we're sleeping. And, you know, sometimes I'm amazed, but I, I like to do crossword puzzles. And um, a lot of times... I'll just hit a wall, you know, with a crossword puzzle, and then I have to step away from it. And then I come back to it, and it's like I can kind of see where I went wrong. But it took sort of stepping away from it. And I always wonder, what, you know, was my brain working on this in some weird part, some, like, back room? Was it starting, was it, like, you know, doing, like, a little Rubik's Cube with stuff? I don't fully know. But I think that's partly why dreams are interesting, because they're a part of the brain that we don't fully understand, you know? And yet it's it's very creative, I think. So we've all got a little obsessive child in the back of our head. Oh, for sure. You know, I hope so. Maybe Jeff Bezos doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> you know. Um, let's talk about another graphic memoir that affected people deeply. 
This was the number one New York Times bestseller for, what, two years running? It was about your experiences with your parents toward the end of their lives, and it's called Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? It won the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Rubin Award from the National Cartoonist Society, and the inaugural Kirkus Nonfiction Prize. It was a finalist for the National Book Award. It was obviously a painful story for you, but there was so much entertainment in it. <laughs> there was so much leavening value uh, throughout the book. Um, well, thank you. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad that um, you liked it. Did you find the um, writing of those experiences, those rough experiences of seeing your parents through caregiving, uh, losing one of them and then the other, you know, how was the process of putting that together into a book? Was it jarring? Was it enlightening? Was it, um, did it help, you know, put everything into a helpful narrative? Um, I think my, my instinct with work is that for me, putting things into a narrative is maybe for me the way... I try to make sense of everything, you know, not just that experience, but everything. Because I do find <laughs> life is kind of stressful. Yeah, and most of the time I find it just like I don't want to deal with it. It's just very difficult. And somehow drawing about things and writing about things and making a narrative out of things. I don't know if it helps me understand, but it feels necessary. Um, otherwise, it's just, you know, I feel like um, I'm just floating in space and asteroids are just hitting me like left and right and I don't know what to do. So this, this is a way for me to deal with it. Um, have you had people tell you that this book, Can't We Talk About Something Pleasant, that they were navigating the same situation and these strange situations that you wrote down in the book that this was helpful somehow? Yeah, I, I've had all sorts of people tell me that. I mean, not just like Jewish people from New York, but like people from like all very different backgrounds from mine, people whose parents were from you know, like a farm in Iowa or whatever, like something very, very different from my parents, but um, amazingly similar trajectories and emotional experiences. I remember one particular story, and this is about your mother fading away in hospice, uh, mostly unconscious and sleeping. And then one day you show up and she's sitting up with a nurse eating a tuna fish sandwich. Yeah. And you wonder to yourself, what stage of this process is the tuna fish sandwich stage? Yeah, you just, I mean, part of going through that for me was just how completely ignorant I was of that part of life. I mean, it was just never talked about. When I looked for information about it, there was just like nothing. Um, or I would read... Like, there was always some sort of, like, bullshit, a deathbed reconciliation. And every movie, every book, it would be, like, on the person's deathbed, suddenly there would be this thing, and then it would be great. And I think I was sort of hoping or expecting that, you know, foolishly. 
And a lot of people it doesn't happen for, you know. And then that's just life, you know. That's just the way it is. And uh, it's... It's just one of those things that there's so much in the popular culture about that. You know, that for me was maybe the hardest thing of all. You're listening to Words and Pictures, coming to you this week from the Portland Book Festival. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today we're talking with award-winning author and cartoonist Roz Chast. She's seen over a thousand of her cartoons published in The New Yorker, and she is the author of multiple books, including the graphic memoirs, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? and I Must Be Dreaming. You did have dreams of your parents oh, after yeah. they died. Yes. And, and, and what was that like? I mean, what was the difference between your, your waking experiences of your folks and, uh, and how they appeared to you later? Uh, it's, it makes a certain sense to me. I felt like when my father died that it was okay, that things were, you know, they weren't perfect. Um, I wish I had been nicer in many ways, but he would appear in my dreams sometimes, and he was usually all right. Um, with my mother, it was different. She was suffering in ways. Mm. And I still sometimes have dreams about her where, you know, she's collapsed in some way, and I have to take care of her. And so I know that's just my karma or whatever word you want to use my you know where things were not quite right with my mother and things were better with my father but you know so that's reflected in my dream life I mean big shockaroo (laughs) you know (laughs) now you're a New Yorker through and through and so are both of your parents yeah yeah so um that's the space where you're comfortable you know all the ins and outs I know enough of them so that I'm less uncomfortable there than I am any other place. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I really do not like to drive. I don't like cars. I don't like anything about them. I don't, the idea of changing, you know, a tire is scary. The idea of calling AAA to have them change a tire is scary. Everything about it is being on a highway and having, having everything about driving I hate. I just do not like it at all. And when I'm in New York, it's just this whole phobia aspect that I can just push aside. You know, like I am like anybody else in the city. I like a grown-up person. I can get myself around. I'm not dependent on other people. I don't have to think about like, oh, if I drive there, I'm going to be driving back at night or Oh, driving there, it involves a highway. And I have a GPS, which has helped, but it doesn't matter because then I worry, what happens if the GPS goes off? And that once happened, it like did something. It like, I don't know whether it, it like went off or it had to reboot or something. And it was like the whole time I was driving, it was just like this nightmare. You know, driving is a lot of it. But it's also, you know, it's home. It's where I grew up. So it's, it's familiar in a certain way. Well, you do divide your time between New York and Connecticut. Yes. And your youngest daughter decided to move to Manhattan to attend the School of Visual Arts. Yes. And you started writing a guidebook for her. Yes. That ended up becoming the graphic memoir, Going Into Town, A Love Letter to New York. And along the way, it just happened to win the New York City Book Award. 
Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, when she, and I should say here, she was she then, she's trans, he's my son now. But back then, she was my daughter. So anyway, uh, before she went off to School of Visual Arts, we were up in Connecticut, and I thought, okay, I should explain some, like, basics to her about New York. You know, the things that they don't mention in the guidebooks, like the grid aspect of Manhattan and the way that Fifth Avenue divides the east side from the west side, basic stuff. So I was explaining, I still remember, we were sitting at the kitchen counter, and I was like, okay, so if you want to walk, if you're, the grid makes navigation very easy. You're on 53rd Street, you want to walk to 56th Street, you walk three blocks uptown. And she looked at me and she said, what's a block? And I realized that we needed to go a little deeper into, you know, this kind of thing. So that book was based on a little booklet that I had made for for her. And at the end um, of four years of college, she gave it back to me and said, you know, this was extremely helpful. Thank you. And, you know, it had little maps in it. It was like how to hail a cab, um, what the major cross streets were, the locations of the best museums, why you needed to know what the major cross streets were. Because, you know, with the subway line, there's the east side lines, the west side lines, the difference between them, that kind of stuff, just basic stuff. How to get a metro card, all of that. And uh, I thought, you know, this would be a, maybe an interesting, a fun book, because I really do love New York, like, deeply. So, so that's where that book came from. Well, and some of the cultural quirks of New York are fading away. Uh, the little strange pockets, the little things only, yeah. uh, only the natives and the insiders know. Yeah. But some of that stuff is still there and has made its way into the book. Yes, we, yeah, they're definitely, it's still there. It's still there, not as much. Not as much. I mean, the pandemic wiped out some of it and and just everything. New York is always changing. Uh, I still remember being a young cartoonist and being with some older cartoonist, maybe like 30 years older than me. And, you know, him talking, oh, New York's not the same, you know, 30 years ago is blah. And so I'm very wary of like that kind of nostalgia for the way things used to be. Well, you said the pandemic changed a lot, but New York is still an important place to be in the arts. Oh, completely. And to be even a cartoonist. I mean, you still get together with uh, your other cartoonist friends. Um, Not the way it was. I mean, it used to be people would go in in person and meet with the art editor, the cartoon editor at The New Yorker, and that is no longer. And that would be on a particular day, so you'd, yes, you'd, you'd have yes. conversations together. Right, of course, of course, and we would, you know, compare notes, and it was a very congenial, very bonding sort of thing. You know, I did that mostly through the 80s, and then when I had my children and we moved out to Connecticut, it was, I had to send stuff in, I faxed in for a long time. Now I make a PDF and send in, but people were still, up until a few years ago, up until before the pandemic, people were getting together for lunch, uh, some of the younger cartoonists. But, you know, I, I had done that. I had done that. It was wonderful. It was great. 
And you've had some interesting collaborations, including with Steve Martin. Yeah. The alphabet from A to Y with bonus letter Z. Yes. Yes. I like collaborations. Uh, uh, Steve Martin, Stephen Merritt from Magnetic Fields. We did a book. Uh, Calvin Trillin, my dear friend, uh, Patricia Patty Marks. We've collaborated on several books, children's books and also humor books. Yeah, there's a couple. Uh, Why don't you write my eulogy now so I can correct it, a mother's suggestions. And you can only yell at me for one thing at a time, rules for couples. Yes, yes. And this is uh, Patty. The eulogy book was things that Patty's mother, uh, who was a hoot, used to say. Things like, never serve salmon at a dinner party. It is boring. And uh, plaids should never be based in white. She had like a lot of really wonderful rules. But she did say to Patty once, why don't you write your eulogy for me now so I could correct it? And the other one, the rules for couples, that's what her boyfriend said to her. You can only yell at me for one thing at a time. But there's all kinds of things in there, like marriage is one person secretly turning up the thermostat and the other person secretly turning down the thermostat until one of you dies. And uh, <laughs> she's just hilarious. So, so she did the writing and I did the drawing. But collaborating with Patty is really special because it's more of a Venn diagram. There's always an area in the middle where, you know, she can suggest the drawings and I can suggest um, ideas. So you've been with The New Yorker since 1978. You've done over a thousand cartoons. You've done cover designs. Do you have any uh, any projects that you've wanted to do for a while that you you just haven't gotten to yet? Um, hmm. Well, I mean, my my next thing that I really want to learn is block printing. So I don't know if that counts as like a project. It's like I've, there's crafts I want to learn. So you like the analog arts. The analog art. Yeah, I like, but I like the digital ones. I mean, I have an iPad, and I love to draw on it. It's fun. But, yeah, there's there's something about analog art that I like, I guess, being unconnected to anything. <laughs> there is something that's different. I haven't completely quantified it, what it is different about drawing digitally and drawing with physical materials. And I've talked about this with other artists and, you know, even like younger ones. And there's something, when I see art that's like digital art, sometimes like I'll admire the drawing and all of that, but there's something that's distinctly different about it. And I see it in my own digital drawings. Um, I think it's something about the consistency of the line. Like the pen always has some little glitches. You know, there's always unexpected stuff that happens and uh, it's just never perfect and there's some kind of perfection in digital art that just can't exist with the physical materials. I'm remembering when Charles Schultz died and there were all these tributes to Sparky from his fellow cartoonists and a couple of them said that they loved that he never got an inker to assist for him. He always did his own inks. And as his fingers started fluttering, sort of Parkinsonian yeah. uh, flutter, 
it would change the line. And they loved the delicate way that, the, that his ink line was in wow. his later cartoons. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, I don't think I'll ever have anybody do my work for me. I, it's, you know, something I need to do. I don't want to speak too soon. I just can't imagine, uh, like, having somebody else do it, and they, they would do it wrong, and then I'd be sad, and then I'd have to, like, actually tell them, and that would be horrible. <laughs> well, you've been listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and my guest today has been New York Times bestselling author and cartoonist Roz Chast. She's the author of multiple books, including the graphic memoirs, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? and I Must Be Dreaming. And her cartoons have appeared in The Village Voice, The National Lampoon, and of course, The New Yorker. Roz, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And for those listeners who might be interested in finding out more about your work, where would they look? Uh, Instagram, probably. Uh, just Roz Chast. And that's uh, R-O-Z-C-H-A-S-T. Well, we've been coming to you today from the Portland Book Festival. Thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. And thanks to Literary Arts and to Mind the Bird Media for their collaboration. You can find an archived version of this show later today at kboo.fm slash wordsandpictures. And be sure to follow us on social media at wordsandpictures.